0: Welcome to Hospice News Elevate Podcast. My name is Jim Parker. I'm editor of Hospice News. And uh, with me today to talk about what's happening in the hospice mergers and acquisitions market is Jake Vesely, associate at Provident Healthcare Partners, and Kevin Palomara, managing director also at Provident. Jake is responsible for fostering and development both new and existing relationships with operators and executives across numerous disciplines within the healthcare industry. In addition to advising companies on consolidation drivers and trends with their respective specialties, he's active through all phases of the transaction process with an emphasis on deal origination, valuation, and execution. Kevin has been with Providence since 2002. He maintains relationships with key industry consolidators and private equity firms to assess their growth and acquisition strategies. He's also responsible for seeking out strategic acquirers for all current clients, evaluating different acquisition opportunities, and facilitating the negotiation process. Jake, Kevin, thank you both for being here.
1: Thanks for having us, Jim.
0: Appreciate it. So as most people in the industry know, the hospice M&A market is just booming right now. I think we at Hospice News are covering between four and seven transactions per week at this point, and those are just the ones that are publicly announced. What forces are driving this market?
1: Yeah, so so Jim, uh, this is Kevin. Thanks again for having us on the podcast. You are correct. Uh, We have been very active in the hospice marketplace over the past, certainly the past couple of years. And, you know, I think we there's no secret that it's probably at, you know, an all-time peak in terms of number of transactions and overall transaction valuations. Certainly, from a seller's perspective, it's a tremendous time to be, you know, in the market. You know, public comparables are at all-time highs as you think about, you know, the Addis, the Metasys, the LHCs of the world where they're trading on the public markets. The interest level from a very diverse field of prospective partners is wider than it has ever been. And we're going to talk about, you know, who some of those groups are and some of the drivers, you know, from the buyer perspective. There's also some outside forces outside of the space in terms of potential increases in the capital gains tax in 2022. Some folks, you know, are wary of that potentially going up. Significantly, and obviously, as you go through a transaction, you're you know, the vast majority of the proceeds you receive will be at capital gains treatment, and that's very favorable for sellers. And obviously, if that goes up next year, certainly has an impact on net proceeds to to sellers. You know, hospice is a very fragmented marketplace. You know, as you th- as you look around the country, you don't see you know markets that are dominated typically by one or two providers, and you know, again, it's, it's a, it's a, it's an environment where, you know, you think about, you know, there's reimbursement that has seen very significant, you know, issues when you compare that to home health and some of the other post acute verticals. You know, it's just been a very, you know, frothy situation for sellers. And I think as you think about the number of prospective buyers that are out there right now, whether they're strategic entities or private equity groups or some of these newer entities that we'll talk about, The dynamics at play are are very much in the seller's favor. And as you think about growing a hospice agency as a buyer, you know, typically your success in growing, you know, is a lot higher as you go out and make acquisitions. That's a much quicker, easier path to growth as opposed to starting up in a new location, if you can even do that, because some, some areas obviously have. A certificate of need requirement or a moratorium. It's just, you know, you have a lot of things clicking for you as a seller, you know, in the marketplace right now. And what that has all led to is an environment, like you said, where, you know, hospice news is you guys are probably reporting on almost a deal a day, probably in the hospice market. And again, those are just the deals that you're aware of that are actually publicized.
0: So can you maybe add some color about some of the the key trends you're seeing in this activity, you know, any patterns that you're observing?
2: Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to touch on that, Jim. And I think one thing that would be important is to kind of touch on just some of the macro trends we're seeing, you know, in hospice in general and kind of why that's driving M&A activity. So if you, you take a step back, you know, I think what we've continued to see in the hospice market as well as the home health market as well is you know, a, a continued increase in demand and expenditures year over year, which is really driven by, you know, the aging population, it, you know, a, an increased pressure, you know, from a society perspective in terms of finding lower cost alternatives to care. You know, each year the health care expenditures are increasing, and it's really a, a driving factor for, you know, payers and health systems in general to find a lower cost alternative. In hospice care and home-based care really offers, a you know, a great solution for this. And then additionally, patients, you know, really have a desire to receive care in their home or outside of a, you know, traditional institutionalized setting. So, you know, these kind of tailwinds in the space are really driving, you know, investor interest from both strategics and the private equity community. You know, furthermore, as Kevin mentioned, you know, earlier, we continue to see a very highly fragmented market where there's a large number of smaller independent providers across the country with really... Uh, you know, the larger organizations are only making up a small portion of the overall market share. So it's really a great environment for consolidation and some of the roll up plays that you see in the private equity world. And as a result, you know, we're kind of seeing an enormous amount of inbound interest, um, you know, from both private equity firms and strategic consolidators. Um, you know, I think this year we've received more calls than ever from you know, private equity firms, search funds, backs, you know, you name it that are looking to you know, either enter the hospice space or, you know, just increase their market share for their existing platforms. You know, we saw, you know, several large private equity, private equity exits at the end of, uh, 2020, you know, with, uh, St. Croix and, and Care Hospice. And, you know, there's rumors of multiple other large private equity groups that are entering the market this year that, you know, private equity firms are, you know, making very aggressive runs at, uh, you know, in order to establish new platforms. You know, on the strategic side, you know, I think that we continue to see strategic consolidators utilize M&A as it's, it tends to be one of the easiest and, and quickest ways to gain market share or, you know, expand it to new markets. You know, the strategics are obviously trading at record high valuations right now, so they're able to, you know, be very aggressive in their M&A strategy and, you know, have it still remain a, a creator for them, you know, if they think about these opportunities.
0: Thank you. And as you both alluded to, valuations for hospice assets are sky high right now. How high are the multiples reaching, and why are buyers not scared away by the high price tags?
1: Yeah, this is obviously – it's been an interesting environment in terms of valuations right now, and not everybody – is reaching, you know, I'll just caveat that by if you're a, if you're a seller listening to the podcast right now, you know, you, there's certain dynamics at play that are leading to these types of valuations. Certainly like, like we mentioned earlier in the podcast, buyer seller dynamics at play, you know, are just leading to incredibly competitive processes where, you know, an investment banking firm like Provident, you know, has a pretty much a feeding frenzy when you think about these processes for, for quality, you know, you know, agencies that have developed scale and density in in key markets, you know, we're certainly seeing valuations north of 10 times EBITDA. And when I say EBITDA, that's earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. That's typically the standard that a, a strategic or a private equity group will use, you know, in terms of valuing, you know, a hospice agency. So if you can check the box and you have scale, you know, call it beyond 250 to 500 ADC within your agency. If you develop significant density in your market, if you have good history with the cap and you have, you know, good trending in your length of stay, you know, you're going to be at a point where, you know, if you're on the right market, you could be low teens, mid teens in terms of evaluation multiple on your EBITDA. And certainly the bigger ticket deals that are out there right now are trading even higher than that. And obviously one of the, you know, sanity checks, you know, folks can look, can use to look at, although it's not a perfect science is to look at the public markets. And you've seen for really a pretty significant period of time now, the large consolidators that are publicly traded. And I'm referring to a medicis, Addis, LHC group. ChemEd to some extent, although VTAS is a little bit of an interesting animal because obviously they're not completely comprised of of the hospice asset. But if you just look at the general, you know, valuation levels for those entities, they've been in the twenties. Now certainly I don't expect the hospice valuations to start going into the twenty plus times EBITDA as a standard. But as you think about where the publicly traded entities are at, and you can apply you obviously apply a discount to that for privately held you know entities. It allows groups, to your point, Jim, to get comfortable, you know, with those valuations. And I think, you know, what the private equity groups have seen as well, I mean, from a public perspective, it makes sense because it's accretive to their overall business. If you're trading as a public entity at 25 times EBITDA, even if you're paying 15 times EBITDA for a transaction, it's an accretive transaction and and it's, it's something that your shareholders should be comfortable with. I think from a private equity perspective, it becomes a little more challenging because those are some pretty lofty numbers. But I think what they're also saying on the back end is, we might be paying 10, 12 times EBITDA or more for what they might consider a smaller hospice opportunity. But as we consolidate and build a platform and look to exit that opportunity, and I'm sure you know St. Croix saw this and CARE saw this, and our friends at Bristol will probably see this as they're in the middle of their own process they're probably looking at a substantial valuation on the back end that, you know, is probably high teens, maybe even at some point, you know, approaching 20 times even does. So that's how groups are able to to justify that, I think, as you think about where the public markets are at and where, you know, private equity groups can get comfortable with, you know, not being publicly traded and looking to ensure that, you know, if they make an investment within a hospice entity – That there's a meaningful return for them, you know, down the road. And typically for private equity, they're looking at about a five year window.
0: Now, who's participating in these deals? You've mentioned some of the major players, but what are you seeing in terms of volume involving private equity buyers versus strategics?
1: I can start and Jake, you can, you can fill in, but I'd say if we're, if we're working on an engagement with a client who is open minded to exploring all of their options, you probably have a mix of publicly traded, you know, strategics. There's probably about 12 groups that fit in that bucket. Now, that's the bucket where you're talking about the Addises, the Emeticists, the LHCs, the, the kindreds of the world, you know, in some of the groups that are, that are publicly traded. Then you have a secondary bucket, which is kind of quasi-private equity. It's those established entities that have private equity backing. So that would be Care, that would be St. Croix, that would be Bristol, that would be Traditions with their backers at Dorleton and that's a bucket of probably, Jake, you know, what would you say, 20 or 25 legitimate consolidators fall within that bucket?
2: Yeah, I would say so.
1: And you know, you even have
2: consolidators that you know may not have a hospice arm today, but I think that as we see investors look to try to capture the full continuum of, of home-based and of life care. You, know, you really start to see you know you may see some groups that only do personal care or only do you know skilled medicare you know start to take a serious look at hospice and i think that you know as a result we're seeing a
1: growing investor pool you know because of that yeah and then the final bucket would be traditional and again i'll put traditional private equity here and traditional private equity could also encompass family offices search funds that's a very very large bucket jim you could mm-hmm. you know an uneducated investment banking firm that maybe doesn't look at the space could probably go out to like 300 groups in that bucket. You know, from our perspective, we look at that and we say, you know, we we would f- probably focus on the top 50 or so groups within there that, that meet certain criteria. It's just a very competitive environment right now. And if you're a private equity group and you're looking at an opportunity within hospice, you know that it's going to be competitive from a valuation perspective, so you'll probably need to bring something to the table beyond, you know, just capital. Because obviously you're going to have to be competitive from a a valuation perspective. And private equity groups will be competitive. I mean, let's just look at the CARE and the, the St. Croix deals are a great example. Their private equity group backers did not just sell to a large strategic. They ended up selling to a bigger private equity group. So private equity groups can, you know, can play in this marketplace. I think it boils down to a few things what can you bring to the table besides capital? And I think in some instances, we've seen private equity groups develop a very strong thesis around the space. You know, I think there's one group, I think in tandem capital, I'll just use this one example, as a group Jake and I know that has been taking a very thoughtful approach to moving into the hospice world. They're seeking out a platform. You know, when we talk to a group like that, they're very thoughtful in their approach. They bring a very strong game plan to the table. And they also are working with and, and confidentially can't name who it is, but they're working with operators in the space. You know, usually a former CEO, COO from maybe a company that a hostage organization that had been consolidated with an individual who might be outside of a non-compete. That just brings them a little bit more value to the table. And again, I would also tell our friends in the private equity world, it's just so important to build relationships these days. Try to get out ahead of groups that are going to market so when they do it, they do engage with a group like Provident. You've got an existing relationship in place that will certainly help give you an advantage, you know, as you think about positioning yourselves. And again, you know, Jim, like we said, it's just a very, very competitive environment right, right, right now.
0: Excellent, thank you. And uh, are you seeing? You've mentioned some of these, but are you seeing more of these? Uh, I guess what you could call non-traditional buyers looking for hospices, like search funds, family offices, the special purpose acquisition companies, or you know SPACs, and so forth.
1: Yeah, I think you know, from our perspective, we haven't seen a SPAC, which is which stands for Specialty Purpose Acquisition Corporation. Basically, what a SPAC is, it's a it's a shell company. That's formed with the intention of merging with an entity of a certain size, and it's typically over a hundred million dollars. And then you will become a public. You be, basically it is a different path to an IPO. We haven't seen that yet within hospice. I do think we will though. I think there's a very good likelihood that one of the larger private equity back groups. Could be enticed by one of these specialty purpose acquisition corporations who tend to offer very attractive valuations, even beyond the valuations we're talking about and end up in in, in the public arena. So we're not going to see, I don't think we're going to see 10 of those deals, but if we saw maybe one to four publicly traded hospices come out via the SPAC, that would be very interesting. And, and again, Kindred. You know, has also mentioned spinning out their hospice, you know, assets, and that could be a new publicly traded entity. Family office is an interesting one because that is a, it's a, it's a non-traditional. It's similar to private equity, but it's typically high net worth individuals providing capital in a similar model to private equity. The difference typically with family offices, and some groups really like this, is they typically don't have a set hold period. They're much more flexible. If you want to partner with them, they might say, look, we could hold on to, we could be invested with you for the next 10 years or more. We don't have a timeline, whereas with private equity, you typically run into a situation in which they have to monetize their investment within a five-year period to satisfy their limited partners. Search funds, not a huge fan of search funds from from our perspective. Typically, search funds are non-committed capital with very you know, knowledgeable, you know, typically former private equity investors or individuals that are looking for a different model. But, you know, frankly, in a in a very competitive hospice environment right now, we would not probably want to, you know, engage with search funds because I think right or wrong, and if there's any listening to the podcast, I, I apologize for maybe the analogy, but I think you look at it this way. Private equity groups and strategics, let's just ima- imagine you were selling a house They're coming in with offers that are all cash offers or fully committed financing offers versus somebody else coming in and looking, putting an offer in for that same house saying, I don't have a pre-approval. I don't have anything really from, you know, from a financial institution, but don't worry. I really like your house and I'll find a way, you know, before we get to the closing table to pull together the funds. They might not like that analogy, but I think that's a that's a pretty simplistic way of thinking about you know search funds and how we view them. They certainly have a place in other markets, but I think right now, you know, if you're a if you're a high quality hospice, it's a little bit riskier road to go down when you should have many many more attractive options in front of you.
0: And uh, what are some of the characteristics that tend to make a hospice attractive to buyers? What, What is whetting the appetites of potential investors? Yeah. You know, I think this is probably one of the most common
1: questions we get from, Mm -hmm. you know, potential clients who are, you know, exploring
2: transaction opportunities for their organizations. And, you know, there's really a few key components that increase valuation in these transactions and and separate groups from, you know, one another or or make themselves, you know, true platform opportunities. And I think the first one is, you know, simply just size, size and scale. You know, groups that have a significant, census, or, you know, revenue, you know, will simply drive a higher valuation than, you know, smaller organizations. You know, especially when you're thinking of private equity firms looking for a platform investment, typically they have minimum thresholds from a revenue and EBITDA perspective in order for them to make investments. So, you know, obviously groups that are larger, you know, will command a premium multiple. As you dig in a bit deeper, I think that, you know, what separates groups from one, one another as well is, you know, have they made investments in their infrastructure? So you know, has the group made investments in things like their IT department, their HR department, you know, in terms of their management? Do they have a strong CEO or CFO? I um, mean, you know, all of these are extremely important as you think about, you know, investing into a company, you know, with the intention of, of scaling it and growing it into, you know, new geographies. You know, you really need to have all of these, you know, attributes in place in order to be successful in that. And, you know, especially as, you know, we continue to transition to a value-based care environment, it's very important that groups have the ability to, you know, track data and outcomes. And all of this really stems from investment in infrastructure. So that will really separate groups um, from one another and and command, uh, you know, premium valuations. Another thing I want to hit on is density. You know, I think that we often find groups try to expand too quickly into other states to to cover a larger footprint rather than focusing on building density within their, you know, existing geography. And when you think about a private equity firm establishing a platform or, you know, an existing group looking for a regional expansion play, they're going to put more value on geographic density rather than, you know, a thinly spread asset. You know, I would say lastly is, you know, on the, the KPI front, You know, groups are going to look at, you know, things like admission characteristics. You know, are the patients primarily admitted due to, you know, cancer? Or is it more, you know, things like Alzheimer's or dementia, you know, that would result in longer lengths of stays? You know, that's something that groups really dial into is, you know, what the admission characteristics are and what that impact is on the length of stay of the overall patient mix of these organizations. You know, with the frequency of, you know, Audits and ZPICs and things like that, you know, it's
1: especially important that, you know, groups are staying under the cap the cap uh, limits and, you know, limiting the length of stay to,
2: you know, a healthy number for further groups. So that's something that groups will focus on as well.
1: Yeah. 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 Know your numbers. I think, I think one of the things that we always advise our clients to do, if they haven't done it already, and it's not long dollars, I mean, out of pocket. But in addition to putting together a really attractive marketing presentation for the buyer universe, you know, in the financial and accounting work that goes into that, you know, within the hospice space, we think it, it's very wise to engage with a third party group to do kind of a global cap analysis prior to going out. You know, a lot of groups don't fully have their hands around, you know, where their cap is and what their cap situation is. And for uh, relatively short dollars, you know, you could have a a very, you know, meaningful, you know, work product put out for you ahead of going to market from a third-party consulting group. Think of a symmetry health group type, type agency, type consulting firm that can really give you a good picture of where your cap is at and can do some trending analysis around that. And it's a very, very valuable tool. That as you go out to market and you're looking at a process that will likely result in, you know, a very meaningful, you know, monetary event for you as a as an owner, you know, you want to make sure if you sign the letter of intent that that's where you close the deal at, and just going through those types of exercises, engaging with an uh, with obviously an investment banking firm, but also doing some of that third party work in addition to the work Provident does, will just give you the assurance that look. We get to a letter of intent at a, at a really attractive valuation. I know it'll close. And the biggest, the biggest hindrance, and Jake knows this from, from working with, uh, with me on, on, on multiple deals is these groups that don't have their hands around the cap could have some really big surprises. Once a buyer comes in and uses those same types of firms, like a semi tree to come in and, and do a cap analysis and you find out, oh, you know, I had, you know, half a million dollars of cap. And now that's going to impact my financial statements. That impacts my valuation. So you really need to have your hands around your KPIs and those again, going back to your question on what makes the deal attractive. If you actually have really attractive KPIs and you have third party, you know, a third party work product that legitimizes all of that, you're really positioning yourselves well to the broader market.
0: Thank you. So one thing we've seen in the last couple of years are some some massive transactions. We had uh, Brookdale selling its home health and hospice operations to HCA Healthcare recently. There was Humana's buyout of Kindred at Home and then the emeticist purchase of Care to name just a few. What implications do these large transactions have for the marketplace overall?
1: Yeah, these large transactions, Jim, are just driving competition. You know, it's such a different market than it was. And again, I've been doing this for about 19 years. I think about 10 years back when it was like, you know, your consolidators were basically, and some people don't even probably remember these names. You had Odyssey, you had Vistacare, Vitas, Gentiva, and it was widely, it was, it was a smaller marketplace, hospice focused buyers. Now what you're seeing is all the legacy Medicare home health groups are in hospice in a big, big way. You have a prevalence of private equity and you have groups like, let's just use LHC group as an example. 10 years ago, LHC group was probably, you know, a sub hundred million dollar enterprise. They're a multi-billion dollar enterprise today down in Lafayette. And the amount of capital that these groups like, you know, LHC have, And these private equity-backed groups are creating massive competition. I think you saw Ametisus was a very, very much a first mover, probably along with Legacy Gentiva, you know, in the public public markets. And so you probably saw, going back five years, Ametisus was kind of the dominant player when it came to those bigger deals. And when I say bigger deals, I'm talking 75 to 100 million dollars or more. Now, when you get up to a deal that's north of a $100 million, I mean, the market is so ripe with consolidators with significant backing because, I mean, you've only mentioned a few deals, Jim, but, I mean, more recently, you know, we saw what happened with Seasons. We've seen Bright Spring, which is, you know, some folks probably remember as the legacy ResCare group, has moved from a very heavy Medicaid model to a very diversified, you know, I don't even know what you would call them, but they cover the entire continuum of care, anywhere from pediatrics to Medicaid to Medicare home health, and now they are making a big splash in hospice. We've seen what, you know, Addis has done. Five years ago, Addis entering the, med- the, the hospice arena would be crazy. I mean, nobody, nobody ever thought a Medicaid personal care group would make such a dramatic move into hospice care but Addis has made two or three of the more sizable acquisitions. So what you're just seeing, Jim, is just this prevalence of groups that are moving away from a single care setting. And I guess the only group you could really look at that is really stuck to their guns is Vitas. They are hospice focused, they remain hospice focused, they're not very acquisitive, but they kind of stay in their lane. Everybody else They've spread out, and now they—they, they, I mean, God, they don't even have two legs to the stool or three legs of the stool. You have certain groups out there that have four, five, six legs to the stool, and they're even adding on to that with new with new offerings. Hostess though remains kind of the the gold standard for M and A though, and when you think about the number of consolidators that can reasonably complete a transaction of a hundred million dollars to a billion dollars. 5 years ago that was probably less than a handful of groups that that were out there really looking for those types of deals. Today, that same opportunity you're probably going out to to a qualified buyer universe of 50 to 100 plus investors and buyers.
0: What are M&A stakeholders watching for in the hospice space right now? I know there's, you know, forthcoming at least possible transactions related to Encompass Health and Bristol Hospice, and you mentioned, you know, Humana spinning off and and potentially selling their the uh, Kindred Hospice segment. What do you have your eyes on?
1: Yeah, so from the M and A marketplace in terms of what analysts that we talk to that cover the markets, especially on the public side, you touched upon it a little bit, which is, you know, where do things end up going with some of these mega deals? And will we have some new public entities in the hospice landscape in the next 12 months? I think we will. And, you know, you could see an Encompass do something. Encompass could do a lot of different things. We've, we've heard, you know, that legacy health self group is going to be looking to split up the post-acute from the inpatient so that you could see a new publicly traded entity via a stack. You could see them merging with a, with a non-traditional hospice buyer. There are several stacks that have a pretty dedicated thesis to in-home care with a very strong focus on hospice. So like I said, it wouldn't surprise me if someone maybe like a Bristol, I'm just completely speculating, enters the public market through a SPAC because they really fit right within the sweet spot of of what some of these SPACs are looking for. There's a lot of you know private equity groups that have developed pretty significant scale in the hospice marketplace that have been around for a long time. So it'll be interesting to see... If those deals go out for their, for their secondary events here over the, you know, over the next, you know, six to 12 months, I'm sure we're going to see some things that might surprise folks that pop up in the next three or four months because some of these private equity groups are having the same concern about capital gains that a founder led business is having right now. And so what you might see is Oh man, you know XYZ Hospice ended up doing a sale in December, and you know their, their private equity group just invested in them, you know one or two years ago. So I don't think Jim, you're going to see any kind of slowdown in the activity on on your website with the press releases mm-hmm. and the news. And, and I can tell you, Providence working on a couple of. Deals of, of, meaningful size and scale that hopefully will be announced here in the next couple of months. But yeah, I think the questions you're asking are the same ones we're getting from some of the, some of the folks that cover the public markets. And I just don't see there being any real slowdown. Now you are running out of really big providers, but you know, I'd say if you look at the top 10 list that you guys put out every year, like the top 10 auspices, that certainly has changed pretty, pretty meaningfully since the last time you put out a list because you know, Some of those groups have combined with some you know, some of those groups within the top 10 have combined. Some of those groups have come within, you know, other organizations that were probably in the top 20 or 30 and vaulted them up to the top 10. So we are running out of big deals. A lot of the big groups, there's not too many groups left of very, very significant scale that have not gone through a private equity transaction or sold at this point. There's a couple of them. But, you know, I think we're at the point now we're over the next year or so. You know, at some point, every major hospice that has 2,500 or more patients is probably either going to be private equity backed or a part of a uh, of a strategic entity.
0: Thank you. That's a, it is amazing to see how much the industry has changed over the past you know several years. Did COVID, did the pandemic, impact the M&A market for hospice? You know, for for better or worse.
1: Yeah, I think. Overall, obviously, you're dealing with a nursing shortage and some of those issues that other industries are dealing with. Obviously, you know, if it really impacted hospice, Jim, you probably, you know, would have seen a much different <laughs> hospice M&A environment since the pandemic. So that probably answers your question, which is it did not impact M&A. It certainly impacted the way that these groups have to do deals. Now, PPE and all of that is less of an issue than it was at the early stages because we completed a pretty large deal right in the middle of the pandemic at the height of it. And that, you know, those are the kind of things that we're worrying about. Obviously, you know, the discharges or, or deaths went up pretty significantly for hospices at the height of the pandemic. Length of stay was going down, obvi- for unfortunate for, for obvious reasons. I think if you think about where did it impact folks, where it's not having as much of an impact now, the hospices that had more of an exposure to the skilled nursing facility environment, for obvious reasons, you know, obviously we're not seeing skilled nursing facilities really struggled. And that did impact, you know, the groups that we know that had a more meaningful patient population within uh, facility settings certainly saw a, a short-term reduction. But I'll even say on the flip side to that, you had a group like St. Croix, who, from our knowledge, had a pretty meaningful component of his business in the SNP and still had a wonderful transaction right in the middle of the pandemic and continues to be a, a tremendous platform. So, those are some of the areas where COVID has hurt. I know from a staffing perspective, you know, some of our groups that are doing palliative care as a big part of their, of their operations have kind of had to, you know, have kind of had to be nimble with their model of care. But again, but, but this relates more to some of the staffing issues, which are more prevalent across the entire healthcare landscape.
0: And now in addition to, you know, as we've talked about the range of companies and investors that are buying up hospices, are you also seeing hospice providers purchasing other types of organizations like home health or, or personal care pace and so forth i'm thinking of the uh medicis purchase of contessa as one example do you see this as a developing trend
2: yes absolutely you know i think what we've seen and what we'll continue to see is an ongoing shift of healthcare services into the home mm-hmm. as you know in most cases it's the most cost-effective setting for patients to be treated you know, with these trends in mind, providers are going to continue to utilize M&A and attempt to capture the entire continuum of care services that are home-based, you know, including, you know, the very expensive end-of-life care. And, Jim, I'm glad you brought up the, the contested deal. You know, I think that in addition to that, I, I really think the future for home-based care, you know, including hospice care, is going to be about, you know, taking on and treating the high-cost, higher-acuity patients, I think the medicines contested deal is a great example of this, you know, another deal that you know was recently announced was the partnership between LHC Group and, and H and SCP Health. You know, both these transactions are an attempt for, you know, home care or hospice providers to build out their their hospital at home and sniff at home programs, you know, again to, you know, try to provide
0: Gentlemen, thank you both so very much for your time and for your insights. This was a a great discussion, and I really appreciate it. I'd also like to thank uh, all our listeners who tuned in for this episode. Kevin, uh, Jake, hope we talk again soon. Thank you. Thanks, Jim. Thank you, Jim. Take care.